Welcome to the Adventures of Alice and Bob, a podcast where we get root access to the people shaping the world of cybersecurity today and find out a little bit about their journey so far and the events that have shaped their career. Today, I'm joined by Troy Fisher, an ethical hacker, educator, researcher, and speaker with a passion for educating developers and the public on cybersecurity best practices. He's currently working for the IBM Security Ethical Hacking Team, where he combines his passions for hacking, education, and research. Troy, welcome to podcast. Thanks, James. So we'll start, as we always do, right at the beginning. How did you first become interested in technology? Man, it's... Um... It sort of seems like technology was just always there for me. Um, so my my dad, uh, he's kind of a tinkerer. Uh, I think if if hacking was a thing when he was coming up, he probably would have been a hacker. He definitely has the hacker mindset in almost everything he does. Uh, so he uh, studied electronics in the United States Air Force. He spent a lot of time uh, repairing radar equipment. So he just has a lot of experience and knowledge about electronics and electricity in general. Um, and I think he always felt like it was important to expose us to technology. So uh, going back as long as I can remember, we had a computer in the house. Um, and it's kind of funny. I don't remember my dad using the computer a whole lot, but he always wanted to have one around. So uh, the first computer we had in my house was a Magnavox Odyssey 2. I don't have very many memories of using that, uh, but after that, probably around 1983 or 1984, we got an Atari 400, uh, which was, that was one of the Ataris um, that was like a real computer. It had a, a keyboard and uh, there was a cartridge with a basic interpreter you could put into it. And uh, I, I didn't think of this as a hack for a long time, like until well into my adulthood. But that original Atari 400, I still have this computer in my basement um, just for posterity. Uh, I haven't tried to fire it up in a long time, uh, but the last time I tried, it did work. Um, but that computer came with this membrane keyboard. Like, it was just a flat sheet of plastic with, like, the keys were sort of embossed on it. Just horrible to use. And uh, my dad actually, like, got an Atari 800, which had like a mechanical chiclet keyboard. And he swapped the two keyboards out. Like, and that was, you know, he, that, that was a hack, right? He, yeah, yeah. he made that thing work the way that he wanted it to work. And, uh, it's kind of crazy thinking back because, you know, he didn't have the internet, he didn't have YouTube. So like, I don't know how he knew that that was a thing that you could do or how to do it, but I guess he just, you know, looked up some stuff up at the library and used his existing electronics knowledge and just figured it out. Um, but so, so I, I was always exposed to those computers uh, after the Atari 400 got a little long in its tooth. Uh, we got a Commodore 64 and then we got a PC. And yeah, it's just I, I've kind of always had a computer of some kind within arm's reach. So obviously people listening to this at home might think, you know, Hacking runs in the family there. You've clearly got an interest in electronics and, and these technology and these systems. But I'm looking at the background there and seeing some guitars and possibly a banjo behind you there. And I know you've also at the time had a, a passion for music. So what led you down the computer science route rather than the, the you know, the entertainment, the musician route? Uh, well, it was, it was mostly practical in nature. Uh, I've been I've been making music uh, just about as long as I've been fiddling with computers. Um, I, I started singing in choirs when I was five, six years old. So uh, music has always been a part of my life. 
when I was getting to the end of high school and uh, it was to the point where I needed to decide what career path I wanted to take. I looked very seriously into music theater because um, I, I also love performing on stage as well. And I, I just had to, to, to come to that decision whether I wanted to live the performer's lifestyle or the, the sort of business lifestyle. And um, anyone who's a professional performer will tell you that if there's anything else you're interested in, anything at all, do that thing. And uh, uh, that was kind of the path that, that I, I followed. Like, uh, I also had that passion for computer science. I knew that having, you know, an office job would give me a, a stable uh, lifestyle and that, that's that's the lifestyle that I grew up with, and that's that's the lifestyle that I wanted to have. And of course, one really wonderful thing about arts is that you can always do it. So to this day, I'm I'm making music. I, you know, I I performed just yesterday with my banjo and my ukulele, and uh, I try to get on stage once every year or so. And so yeah, I kind of get the best of both worlds. That's fantastic, and. Uh... Yeah, I've heard that from a few people now, actually, who are, you know, they have the passion for music, but uh, they tend to do anything else but that because uh, more stable income and, you know, more career prospects. Uh, but yeah, and it's, it's great that you've kept those passions uh, alive and still going. So from those early stages in the computer, you made that decision to go towards the computer science route. And did you go to university then to study computer science? Was it just a straight progression through education into the industry? Sort of, but it wasn't the progression that I thought I was going to take, which I guess is common for all of us in this business. Uh, I, I knew that I didn't want to be a programmer. Like, uh, I can, I can, I can code, I can program. Uh, but even like when I was 16 years old, I knew that I, I would not love just doing that all day, every day. Um, I had a passion for doing IT support type things. I loved, you know, kind of fixing computers and figuring out why things were going wrong. So I, when I was looking at programs of study, uh, the sort of information systems majors were becoming a big thing, and they were often run by the College of Business. Uh, so a lot of people tried to steer me towards those programs. But when I looked at the classes that you had to take, it was like, you know, business law and accounting and finance and I didn't want to learn any of that kind of stuff. Uh, so I decided I would just tough out the the actual computer science. Um, and uh, I'm glad I did now because uh, I, I learned a lot of sort of in-depth technical things that for a long time I thought uh, I'm never actually going to use this. And now like every day doing penetration testing, I'm like, I'm glad that I studied that stuff. And uh, in some cases, I wish I had paid more attention to a few of those classes. <laughs> uh, but then after I I got out of the university, so I did internships, uh, mostly doing help desk and IT support type things, um, which is something that I actually really enjoy doing. I like working with people. I like helping people in need, uh, even if sometimes they're unhappy and yelling at me. Uh, but the company that I had worked for for several summers uh, had a growing IT department. So while I was an intern, everyone did everything. The, you got to do a little bit of networking, a little bit of user support, production support, whatever needed to be done. The, even like uh, plunging the toilets, they would call the <laughs> IT support people to, to do that kind of stuff. 
So we did everything. But that summer after I graduated and I was joining up full time, the director of the department saw that there was a need to specialize. It, it was getting too hard for everyone to do everything. So he had divided the IT support team into four subcategories. They were networking, user support, production support, and security. And I mostly chose security because there was no one else already there. So it seemed like the best opportunity for growth. Uh, and I had never given a whole lot of thought to security before that. So I just kind of lucked into it. And uh, I kind of say at the time that the the security program at that company really consisted of everyone having antivirus on their computers. And that was it. There was there was no policies. There was no processes. There was no tooling. There was nothing. Uh, so we had to build it from the ground up, which was <laughs> a really cool experience. And of course, at that time, you know, like you're saying, there wasn't really the thing of a career as an ethical hacker. You know, most companies I'm assuming at that time probably didn't have dedicated security teams, for example. You know, you managed to get into a company that had one as an early uh, start there. So I'm curious in those early career experiences, I believe you're experienced, uh, you experienced things like dealing with the outbreak of the I love you virus early in your career. So how, how did that come about? You know, what was that instant like for someone early in their career trying to get a handle on security? Uh, it was like kind of a shock. Um, prior to that, things were kind of smooth sailing for me and my my department of one. And, uh, you know, I, I just I was going about trying to, to implement policies and get people to sort of do the right thing. And the I love you virus was one of the sort of early viruses to, to catch a lot of um, to catch legs. I guess you would say, sure, and it it got a lot of press, and it it made its way around quite quite effectively. But the way it worked, this is kind of a, a fun thing. Like uh, hackers and and attackers in those days, uh, they had really kind of a trickster mentality. They weren't yeah. trying to really cause problems for you. They were just kind of trying to be silly. So the way this "I love you" virus worked is it just spammed everyone in your in your Outlook address book with the, an email that said "I love you." Uh, so, you know, just one day uh, I'm sitting there toiling away and I get a few uh, notifications that I have some emails coming in and I see the I love you. And it's like, here we go. This is it. Um, and I was a, a big proponent of. Uh, so, so back in those days, people would sort of preemptively shut their networks down if they thought that they could potentially uh get knocked out by one of these things. And And I was always very much against that because I felt like denial of servicing yourself to prevent getting denial of service was like not the correct course of action. Um, so I, I was dead set against shutting everything down. But so what we ended up doing was we, we stopped uh, the SMTP relays so that nothing would go out. Uh, but then we had to trace back and figure out uh, who was the source. Uh, so that's, that's when we start to get to play a little bit of detective work. Um, which, you know, now that's a whole field in and of itself, uh, forensics and incident response. Uh, but back then it was just me. And so uh, I had to work with the the people on the, the networking side of things to figure out who was patient zero, so to speak, uh, and get them cleaned up. And then we could get everyone else cleaned up and, and get it resolved. And uh, it only took us a few hours. I feel like we did a pretty good job considering uh, how inexperienced I was and 
uh, how little we had in terms of resources. Oh, that must have been a really interesting experience because now you know most companies have some sort of playbook or process in place for when they deal with an incident like this. But obviously, like you were saying, this is the first kind of real thing that had come up in that company. Security was a relatively new thing. Were people like jumping up and down worried about this? Were people just entertained by the fact they were getting all these I love you emails? You know, how what was the reaction like and how how was your your ability to kind of start spinning up a process there to get things going? So our, there were sort of two very distinct re reactions. So, you know, from my boss on the IT side of things, he was, you know, absolutely going nuts, very concerned that, you know, they'll we were going to have to shut the network down and be out of service for hours or maybe even days. Um, but out on the floor with the people in the, on the client teams and everything, uh, they were a little bit concerned about how they would have to sort of manage the PR with the clients. Uh, but they kind of found it amusing <laughs> overall. Um, but it, it did start a whole process because um, I didn't just have to put in the, the security like, policy and and all that stuff i also had to be able to sell that to our customers like i wasn't in sales at all but all of our customers had security questions about our products and services and it was up to me to answer those questions so i needed to have a a solid i didn't call it a playbook back then but i needed to have a, a good process that i could show people that we have something that we've planned out. So I actually did, uh, I wrote up a, a little procedure and that was included uh, not just with the training materials for people that we hired in the IT department, but we also included that with some of our uh, like RFP response materials to, to show the customers that we had thought about this and we had a plan in place. And you mentioned that there was that thing of, you know, a lot of the incidents and malware of that time had that prankster mentality like you say you know you'd, you'd be just as like if you're infected you know it wouldn't be like today where systems would be ransomware it would be more likely that a cd drive would start popping open or messages would flood your screen with annoying pop-ups that you then chased around and couldn't click i'm sure many people remember all these annoying things what changes in the threat landscape have you seen over time why you know what have you seen it evolve into and why do you think it's changed from that prankster mentality i think the Big difference is that attackers started to discover that there was money to be found in this, uh, whether that was from uh, selling vulnerabilities to other attackers to just straight up ransomware. Um, that sort of changed the calculus because it's it's one thing to have a, a worm that goes out, you know, to just get use of notoriety or just for the lulls as they say, yeah. uh, but now somebody realizes they could get thousands or e even, you know, maybe even millions of dollars from uh, a ransom. Uh, suddenly that brings people who are a little more uh, malicious in their intents. And um, with those early security incidents that you were dealing with, like you know, sort of setting out your own processes and playbooks, you know, making it up as you went along to a large extent because it hadn't been done before, how do you think dealing with those incidents early in your career and that time you spent on the help desk getting to kind of know the where all the bodies are buried in the company effectively, how do you think that's shaped the way you approach ethical hacking and the educational work you do today? So I like to think that 
uh, I've seen both sides of the coin, um, and I, I can use that to to my benefit. So um, I, I, I think a lot about how the security policies and restrictions that get put in place impact the people on the receiving end of those, whether it's developers or regular end users. So these days I work mostly with developers, um, but it, one thing that I'm always careful to say is, is you know, if, if I find a vulnerability and take, for example, cross-site scripting, right? The, the way to mitigate cross-site scripting is, at least in theory, quite trivial, but I'm always careful to, to avoid saying that to the developers because... Sure, if you're writing, you know, a, a tiny little web app, it may be trivial. But if you need to apply that trivial fix across thousands of inputs, suddenly, you know, that's a lot less trivial and requires a lot more regression testing. And it's it's never as easy as it seems. So I, I try to always uh, work empathetically with the people on the development side of things now. And um, I try to be a, a partner rather than an adversary because uh, one of the benefits of the team that I'm on is that I work for IBM and I'm testing IBM products. So like we are literally on the same team and I, I try to always uh, work from that perspective. We'll drill in some more on, on the work you're doing currently with IBM. But before we do, I, I did hear you say on another interview that you felt like the the hacker mindset and the career you're in now is a lot like the video games that you used to play in the past. So I'm just curious what those games were that that led you to have this hacker mentality and how do you apply those to the world of ethical hacking and the things you're doing today? Oh, man. Uh, yeah, so I, I like differ from a lot of my friends in terms of the video games that I play. I, I don't like games that are like fast twitch, require a lot of like hand-eye coordination, I like a game where you can like think and study things and figure out how to get through them. And so like, if you look at my, my top games, uh, which would probably be like Mist and Riven all the way at the top. And then the witness and the portal series and the Talos principle. And like, these are all games that they're sort of puzzle games at their core. Uh, but they're also, they're very obtuse in a way. Yeah. Um, so for for example, uh, for Mist, which is you know that game came out in probably 1995. For anyone who's never played that game, you appear on an island that's full of puzzles, and that's it. You're basically given no other information, um, and that's basically how a a an application security penetration test works. Uh, you know. I get an application, in many cases, I've never seen that application before, uh, about the best I can do is, is read the manual, but otherwise I have to figure out how it works and how to break it just based on interacting with it. And that's like, these games are, that's the whole process of these games. And I just, I just love them. I have like this pet theory that you could sort of ferret out people who could potentially be good hackers and penetration testers by having them play the witness because it's just like an island full of diabolical puzzles and 
just let somebody play it for an hour and it doesn't really matter how much they progress but if you find someone who is like i can't stop trying to figure out how to solve this puzzle hire that person <laughs> i think that's fantastic advice and uh, you know you had me nodding along when you talk about the games there in even onto more recent things like well, i say recent probably not recent but recent for me is the portal games you know just that having to think in a different dimension about things and different angles and you know uh, messing with uh, the, the laws of physics to a large extent to uh, to come up with a different way to approach a puzzle i think that's that's a really interesting uh, way of thinking about the world of ethical hacking and actually i believe solving a hacking challenge you know on the subject of puzzles was how you ended up sort of where you are today in, in ibm so maybe you could tell us a bit about how you came to be uh, an ethical hacker at ibm yeah that's true um so when i started at ibm uh, i was I was working as the security engineer on a single product and uh, that was a great job. I, I really enjoyed it. I enjoyed the people that I worked with immensely, but one of the great things about working for a massive company like IBM is there are always opportunities to change teams and change roles. And in a lot of departments, it's, it's encouraged uh, that you should sort of reinvent your career every so often. And they give us the opportunity to do that. So I had been at it for, let's see, it must have been three and a half years or so. And I was just kind of, you know, looking around for the next kind of opportunity. And through a series of <laughs> sort of unfortunate events, uh, I had thrown my hat in the ring for a different position and that didn't work out. But that caught the attention of someone else who uh, he himself had changed positions at IBM several times over the year. And you know, now he's a director. Um, so he's pretty high up and he sort of recognized that same passion to, to change and grow and said, think about what you want to do next. And if there's any way that I can help you, uh, let me know and I'll, I'll see what I can do. And in the course of that conversation, he mentioned that this ethical hacking team was hiring. Uh, and I was familiar with those guys because they, were the ones that did the internal testing on our product. Uh, so I already had some experience, even though I wasn't doing any penetration testing, I was the liaison between them and the developers. And it was up to me to be able to reproduce the findings for the developers uh, if they had trouble reproducing it themselves. So I started getting some, some good practice, uh, not necessarily doing the testing itself, but at least being able to understand how their findings worked and how to reproduce them. So I thought I had some good background. So when this gentleman mentioned that they were hiring, I said, that sounds interesting. And uh, so he gave me a card and the card had, you know, a base 64 encoded uh, string of characters. Uh, so I decoded that and it took me to a URL. So I was doing a lot of compliance stuff in those days. And uh, one day, one afternoon, I just needed a break from the compliance stuff. And I just decided I'd go over to the URL and see what was there. And so what was there was a, an intentionally vulnerable website. And it had a message that said, if you're interested in an interview, uh, break into this website and drop your contact information in a, a certain folder. And I thought, okay, I'll give that a try. So I just kind of knocked around for a few hours uh, and it didn't give you any feedback on whether you were successful or not. So I had no idea if I did anything. 
Uh, but the next morning, uh, I had a Slack message from the manager of the team at that time. And he said, I saw you were playing with my hacking challenge. Did you want an interview? <laughs> and I said, yes. Uh, so I, I took that interview and uh, I did not get the job. And um, this is like a, a lesson that I always try to bring forth to the people that I talk to early in their career. Um, I didn't get the job that first time around, but I made connections with the people on the team. Uh, I asked if, if there was someone who could maybe give me a little bit of mentoring. They helped me figure out what I was a little bit deficient in so that I could study those things. And uh, so I worked on that over the next five, six months. And then another opening came up and I applied again. And that time I got the job. So the, the networking and the persistence pays off. That's fantastic that you've kind of combined, you know, the, the puzzle solving thing and the persistence and, and just worked your way through there and built that network and actually, you know, got the job you wanted to do. And it sounds like you're in an ideal position as well, having previously bridged the gap between the, the development team and the ethical hacking team to, to move that way. So what does, what does your current role involve then? What's a typical day like if there is such a thing as a typical day for an ethical hacker at IBM? I mentioned that the name of the team is IBM Security Ethical Hacking Team. So we are primarily associated with the IBM Security family of products. And basically, we just go around and we test those products one after the other, um, depending on different uh, conditions, their release schedule and things like that, uh, the delivery model. They may need to be tested once a year. They may need to be tested once a quarter. Uh, so we help them get those tests done and we just try to shake out as many bugs as possible before those products go out into the real world um, the reason our team exists is because uh, when it was started around 10 years ago someone in management said if we're going to sell products that have ibm security in the name they'd better not have any like glaring security vulnerabilities so we we need someone who can make sure that that doesn't happen so that's where we are uh, so the average day is that we're, uh, I'm, I'm assigned to a, a project, uh, and, uh, it's, it's usually one product and I, I just wail away at that product, um, and shake out as many bugs as possible. And then, uh, the sort of side quests that we go on as, is we have this educational component because the same manager who said that we need to make sure the products are secure, uh, also said that it's not okay if our team just beats the developers up all day long. Uh, we need to be able to help the developers build better products, uh, explain to developers how to make their code more secure. Um, so we have this educational component where we do um, classes, we do webinars, uh, blog posts, all sorts of educational material. Uh, so along with a few other of the people on my team, we run a uh, sort of our, our flagship educational uh, series is a, it's called Think Like a Hacker and it's a, it's an internal web series. Uh, so we present, uh, we try to do something every quarter and we talk about uh, different security topics often based on the trends we see in our testing. So one of the things we often talk about with guests on this podcast is the skills needed to tell the story of cybersecurity to other people, be that educating the board of the company to help them understand the threats that they're facing, or in you know, your case, they're helping developers with threat modeling, understanding what's out there, 
In fact, one of our previous guests, Leanne Potter, was encouraging listeners to go off and try improv and stand up and things as a, as a way of becoming a better evangelist for security. So I'm wondering if you think your background in music and performance has helped in that aspect of your career. It has a lot. Uh, yeah, and I, I, I listened to the podcast with Leanne and a lot of uh, her comments rang true. Um, when you're involved in performance, uh, you develop that muscle of being able to think on your feet and to engage with an audience and to tell a story, uh, which is often the, the most important thing. Because um, if you can explain in a compelling way to someone, whether it's a, someone on the business side or someone on the development side, why this is important uh, in a way that captures their attention you're much more likely to get a favorable response. And if there's someone out there listening who's maybe doesn't consider themselves a natural performer, who isn't comfortable in front of an audience, have you got any tips you'd give them to how they should get started, how they can get themselves more comfortable with that, or how they can better convey the message? Uh, so the, I have two recommendations off the top of my head. Uh, the first is to uh, just improve your public skeeps. Look at that. <laughs> to improve your public speaking skills in general. Um, so there's a, a, a sort of club organization, I don't know what you would call it, called Toastmasters. Uh, they basically organize meetups where people give impromptu speeches and then uh, the, the members of the, the group share feedback on how they can improve their presentations. And uh, so if you can get involved in an organization like that, that can help with your speaking in general. Um, there's also, in my area, we have community theaters, um, so it's really easy to get involved in, in a play and, and find yourself on stage, even if you just have a couple of lines. Um, that can help you deal with the, the nerves and the stage fright. But the other side of that is uh, the, the construction of a, a good narrative, and there, there's a lot that goes into that. A few, as probably a, a year or two ago, uh, there was a presentation, I think it was on the Black Hills Info Security podcast, um, and that was about putting together a compelling presentation. So uh, I would encourage anyone to look up that podcast, uh, and there was a, a lot of really great tips about how to construct a compelling presentation that I, I still use uh, and have carried forward ever since. Some great advice there, and uh, it's becoming quite a theme on the podcast, but I think it really does help develop people's skills. The more you can get out and speak, the more you can gain that confidence, even outside of the workplace, just to be able to get in front of people and speak confidently uh, on a topic you know about. When you're doing those engagements and doing that education piece, how do you effectively engage with engineering teams and developers? You know, sometimes there's a us versus them mentality, and I know you, you said at the start that you feel like you can empathize with them because you've worked both sides do you think that's that's the key to working with those groups to make sure that you're understanding the challenges they're facing it is um and also it's really important to to build relationships uh sort of on an ongoing basis if you're the person who just swoops in once a year and like opens a whole bunch of new trouble tickets that the developers need to fix and then like walks away <laughs> that that's just not a, a good a, a, a good relationship um so if you can be um a consultant 
basically. You know, a person that that is always available to help out, uh, you get a lot better results. So I, I try to be that person uh, for the for the people that we work with. I, I try to always make time for them, um, answer any questions, and never you know roll my eyes, act like I, I don't have time. You know, if I'm in the middle of another test. And someone calls me and, and says, hey, I'm, I'm working on this thing that you reported two months ago. Can you please help me out with it? Like, I try to always make time and, and be their partner and be their ally in the business. And what are, are there some challenges that you come across that, that repeat themselves? You know, we often talk about people not learning the lessons of, of cybersecurity history effectively, that we, we keep cycling around things and we invent new technologies and think, because it's in a container, everything is now secure and this is a brand new secure thing. But actually we're failing to learn the fact it's probably the same as the old web app we were working on before. Are there, are there any themes like that that you come across? Any challenges that you think, if only we could just learn the lessons there? <laughs> the, the toughest part is uh, sort of the regression that happens. So we'll have uh, you know a product where we'll find several of the same class of vulnerability and we'll get those all whipped into shape and then a few years pass and, you know, a lot of turnover happens or management changes and the, the focus gets lost uh, on that. And then we'll start to see these same things regress again. Um, so we have to sort of rehash the, the education. Uh, but often it's, it's, it's new to them, right? Because there's been turnover. Um, so they didn't get the education that their predecessors got three years ago. And so it's, uh, we always have to keep on top of things. And go back to the, the education side of things as well. One of the things we uncovered while doing this research is that you like to use a, a Rubik's Cube analogy, I believe, to explain concepts to students. So maybe you could talk to us a little bit about how you use a Rubik's Cube to explain security. I do. I'll go grab it. Here. Oh, right. Okay. Now, for those listening at home, we're going to do our best to describe this. So uh, I, I came up with this um, because I was doing a, a career day presentation for some third graders a few years ago, and they said it would be really cool if you could do a live hacking demonstration. But here's the problem with doing a live hacking demonstration, especially for a bunch of third graders. I was working one day, and my son came in, and he, he wanted to ask me for something, and I said... I can't help you with that right now because I'm I'm working. And he said, you're not working. You're just reading some code. Like, this is not a very visually interesting thing to, to watch happen, despite yeah. maybe what you see in movies. So I came up with this, uh, with this demonstration. So uh, I just take an ordinary Rubik's Cube that I got off the shelf, and I go through the process of how I explore a product. So if I'm exploring a new product for a penetration test, the first thing I do is, is I have to understand what it's supposed to do. So I demonstrate how you can rotate the different faces on the Rubik's Cube. Uh, you have to understand the, the purpose of it. So in the case of Rubik's Cube, you're trying to get all the faces to match their colors. Uh, and then once you figure out what it's supposed to do, then you need to figure out how you can make it do something that it's not supposed to do. So in the case of the Rubik's cube, I try to turn the, you know, turn it on the diagonal. I try to peel off the the stickers. I always make the joke that uh, they're no longer stickers. They're just molded in. So they, they patch that vulnerability. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. 
but but with a regular off-the-shelf Hasbro Rubik's Cube, uh, the corner pieces have some play in them. And so you can take this corner piece, and if you pull it out a little bit, you can twist it in place. And there you go. And now you've put the Rubik's Cube into an unwinnable state. Um, so I, I use that to demonstrate, particularly for, for younger people, um, sort of the essence of what hacking is because people think that hacking has to be you know taking a computer and making it do something bizarre uh but really you can hack anything you know even down to a mechanical device well that's the first i think for the podcast that we've seen a brute force attack against a rubik's cube so uh i, I think that's a really fantastic way of explaining the concepts actually behind it all so uh really appreciate you demonstrating that um, Thank you. Another one of the things we came across actually was one of my favorite quotes, or more accurately, I think it was a requote because you were referencing the show Arrested Development, which was that perfect security is not a trick, it's an illusion. So maybe you could explain why you think perfect security is an illusion. So uh, <laughs> thank you for, for finding that. I've been like trying to get that to grow legs for a long time. Um, it's like... a. I had someone at my old job once ask me, when will the product be secure? And the answer is never, right? We, there, there's no such thing as perfect security. There's not some kind of trick that you can do where if you do all the right things, then you can get, provide 100% assurance that there is no way to break the product. There's just, there's ever more clever people out there who figure out new and novel ways to attack these products. Uh, so that that perfect security is, it's an illusion. There's no way to do it. Uh, so the best that you can do is to do the best you can at the things that you can fix and then have good mitigations and detections in place for the things that you can't fix. And one of the things, um, when we're thinking about, you know, the things you can fix in your environment, you've spoken about, in the past about the need to focus on foundational cybersecurity practices and you've talked about you know the need to educate developers and make sure everything is is moving in that direction of being increasingly more and more secure and not regressing and and uh, making sure we're learning the lessons of the past but if we think about the current state of the world in a time of kind of global financial challenges cyber skill shortages what do you think are the foundational practices that organizations should be focusing on to deliver the best bang for their book when it comes to security uh, if, in my opinion, it continues to be the nuts and bolts of security. Uh, so from the user perspective, that's strong password policies. Uh, that's good user education in terms of uh, phishing and good uh, network hygiene. From the developer perspective, it's continuing to focus on the, the core aspects of secure development. Um, so having a good security process that's baked into the software development lifecycle from beginning to end. Uh, because if you try to add the security features in after the product is fully baked, that is a lot harder to do effectively than if you can design it in uh, right from the start. And so it's like, as much as things have changed over the last 20 years, those core fundamental ways to protect yourself and your products uh, continue to be fairly constant. And we're almost out of time now, but 
Is there anything you wanted to share with the world before we uh, start to wrap this up? Well, to the aspiring security professionals, uh, I would say to take advantage of all of the great resources that are available now. Because when I started 20 some years ago, uh, there was nothing. Uh, I, I didn't know any people. There weren't really any websites. Uh, there was no way to really learn and practice security. I just had to learn it all by making mistakes. Uh, so now we have great resources uh, for people to learn both offensive security and defensive security. Um, and there are a lot of people out there who are willing to share their knowledge as well. So uh, take advantage of those resources. Uh, there's, it, it's so much easier to, to learn and grow in this industry than it was now. So go for it. Are there any specific resources you'd like to, to point to that you'd recommend? I mean, the ones that I love to use are uh, Try Hack Me, Pentester Lab, and Hack the Box. Um, and those are sort of listed in order uh, of difficulty. So if you're if you're really new to the field, uh, start with Try, try Hack Me. Uh, if you're kind of intermediate, check out Pentester Lab. Uh, and then Hack the Box is kind of on the, the tougher, um, maybe not tougher, but more obtuse side of things. It's harder to get started on the, those challenges. And I think then people should be well prepared for when someone hands them a business card with a base 64 encoded URL to a vulnerable web application that could uh, change their career there. So um, I think that's a, a really good place for people to be looking at starting. Um, if people are interested in finding out more about you or, or the kind of work you do at IBM, where's the best place to find you? Uh, I tweet occasionally uh, at t.fish, that's T-D-O-T-F-I-S-H. Uh, I'm also on the Fediverse at infosec.exchange. So that's t.fish at infosec.exchange. And I have a blog that I post to occasionally, uh, and that's uh, at tdot.fish. Um, currently, I'm working on a lot of uh, offensive security certifications, and I can't really share any information about those. So I haven't been blogging much. Uh, but once I get those out of the way, uh, I'll have some more interesting things to share. Well, that's great. Well, best of luck with the certifications, and we're looking forward to seeing some more blog posts in the future. That's all we have time for, unfortunately, on this episode of The Adventures of Alice and Bob. I'd like to thank our guest, the multi-talented Troy Fisher, the man who seamlessly combines ethical hacking, video game puzzles, banjo playing, Rubik's Cubes, and apparently in, in his early career, plunging toilets, perhaps, in an effort to make the world a more secure place. As always, thanks to our super producer, Ben, and the team at Beyond Trust who make this podcast happen. I'm James Maud, and this has been The Adventures of Alice and Bob. Thanks for listening to The Adventures of Alice and Bob podcast. Don't forget to rate, review, and share this with colleagues that'll get value from it.